0: Good morning, everyone, I'm Jacob Anderson and today we are with the Bugman, Rude pace How are you doing, Rude? I'm
1: going well, thank you, Jacob. But there's a lovely day outside at Christchurch. Sunny, warm, gorgeous, and I'm sitting inside.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think there's a few people all stuck inside working when they would want to be outside. Mm. But uh you know, I I think everyone's kind of trying to figure out what's going on at the moment. This is a bit of a reset for us. Um, and what, what do you think some of the, the solutions or some of the tools that we can look forward to as we start to rebuild using nature we can look at?
1: Rebuilding, that's the one. It's the R word. It's, it's regeneration, rehabilitation, reconfirmation, re, respect, all R words. And it's also to do with um, reconnecting with nature. And I think that is the most important thing because what we're now getting is actually a very pertinent warning from Mother Nature that says, uh, Mr. Kleinbuster, when you were born, there were only two and a half billion people on the planet. And look at you now, uh, seven and a half billion. That's three times as many. And when I go into my garden, Jacob, and I see a plant totally infested with aphids, and you do talk back radio, you know, hello. <laughs> Aphids. You've got so many aphids on your plants. If you look carefully, you'll see ladybirds, you'll see lacewings, you'll see little parasitic wasps sneaking up. You see fungi and bacteria that afflict the aphids because there's suddenly an enormous population of these things. And an ecologist would say, well, that is normal. This is what you get. One creature goes into an enormous peak in population and all its predators, parasites and pathogens are gunning for it. Fast forward, human beings, three times as many people on the planet since I was born. And suddenly nature is going to say, there's a lot of uh, protein here that we can use. Let's have a go. So what happens is we're getting a yearly different uh, uh, genetic strain of the flu virus. Every year you get a flu shot. It's a different strain. We've got H1N5, you name it. We've got Marburg's, we've got SIRS, we've got Mars, we've got HIV, we've got uh, Ebola. Do I need to go on? And it is happening quicker and quicker and quicker. And look, I'm not a disease expert, I'm not at all. But as an ecologist, I go like, wow, somebody
0: is telling us something. So you think this is nature's way of trying to... <laughs> warn us if you like or send us a signal to say hang on what what we've been doing hasn't been right you know maybe we shouldn't be trying to have all of these different species of animals or all of these animals in a, in a shared space and they can jump across from each other and then eventually get to us and of oh, course yep. this is now happening it seems more frequently but maybe you know I think what's kind of strange about this case is people have heard of these things in the past. They've heard of these kind of big global pandemics, but they thought, oh, I think that the world's kind of figured it out now, we'll be okay. And now we're starting to see these old videos of, of people who were warning us about this. And uh, we obviously didn't listen, or we didn't have the plans in place to, to be completely prepared for these types of things.
1: There you go. You, I mean, you're an ecologist, you know exactly how this works. I'm a geologist. You know No, you're not, you're an ecologist because even geology has to do with ecology, Uh, you know, in terms of drift and everything. The point is that every action is a reaction and and, uh, no matter whether you work with stones or plants or bugs or birds, um, everything is connected. So whatever we're doing on this planet, it has an enormous impact. You know, I just realized we are the only species on the planet that has to protect itself from ourselves. Have you thought about that? That's amazing. That idea of that's the sort of way. So what that tells me too is that because we have lost our connection with nature, we have never really picked up those little little troubles, those little spots ahead. You know the reduction of the amount the amount of insects on the planet that you get from Europe. It's not so bad in New Zealand yet. Those little things. Uh, the fact that we are having uh, introduced species that are uh, you know, we invariably introduced here and caused a whole lot of hassle into our in our ecosystem right here. We've had those warnings. Predator to Free 2050 is not born just because we like it, you know, killing rats and stoats. It's because it's absolutely needed to restore, another nice R word, to restore our ecosystems. And that geology is just as much part of that. Honestly, it is.
0: One of the things that I think everyone has noticed, though, is when they were much younger and they go, even in New Zealand, you say it's not as bad here, but you go driving uh, and you used to have all of these bugs hitting the windscreen, and now you go driving and it seems like no one gets anywhere near as many uh, casualties on the windscreen as they used to. Why why is that? What is the cause of that? Do we know much about that?
1: No, not in New Zealand. We don't have the longitudinal data. Now, as a science person, you can understand that longitudinal studies are really important to actually to, to show trends. And we haven't got that. They do have that in Germany and England and other places, but not here. And to be quite honest, my gut feeling, because if I were a betting man, not a scientist, different head, my gut feeling tells me you're absolutely right with your with your idea. I have to avoid hitting a bumblebee a lot less Uh, these days than I did 10, 15, 20 years ago. (laughs) Possums is a different matter, though.
0: Mm. So what do you think some of the things we can do, even in our backyards, to bring back some of the uh, insects or promote some of that um, that biodiversity in someone's backyard?
1: Well, you start with your biodiversity. You look at your soil types and you say, I can plant this here, this is a native, this is pollinated by that, this seed is being... Being fed on by that, this nectar is being uh, food for that, and this is how you set things up. But listen, this is the coolest thing of all. That what I've just described is part of something that we used to call our endemic, our indigenous curriculum. Maori people got that; they totally get that. They've got all sorts of words for it, you know. And and this is. So if I see this, and you and I see this when we walk into our garden or into the forest or wherever, you suddenly realize that by replanting some of these naked areas or these indig- the non-Indigenous areas, if you like, by replanting them with native trees, shrubs and plants, and with lichens and whatever, and uh, you actually start to restore the landscape, and thereby you restore that wonderful fabric of biodiversity, how it's all connected and and meshed together. And that is the knowledge, I believe, that we need to take into early childhood education, primary school, secondary school,
0: onwards. We need to breed nature nerds. Mm. I I haven't seen it happen myself yet, but I'm hearing a few people that I talk to saying that they think there's more birds coming back at the moment. And I imagine that's largely because there's no cars on the road, there's fewer people kind of creating disturbance, so the birds are just feeling like it's a bit safer to go exploring in some of these urban areas, perhaps they weren't before. Does that happen with some of these other species as well, or do you know much about that, or...?
1: I, I do know that because I've noticed with a lot of birds at the moment here on the Hallswood Quarry where I live is that I see certain species that are actually quite rare and I see them more and more commonly because there's not as many foot traffic, not much foot traffic around the tracks. And I'll, I'll give you one example we've introduced in the 1800s a bird called the Searle bunting which occurs in mid to southern Europe and it has only a couple of places in New Zealand where it's quite common. One of them is here in the quarry but you still don't see it very often. Suddenly they're everywhere feeding on the ground because they're not so disturbed so they feel a lot more at ease. So that is just a typical example from right outside my my window here. There's no doubt about it. Uh, I had three fantails flying into my garage simply because they worked, worked out. The door was open, and they looked in the corner of the garage and they saw all these deadly long-legged spiders, and they were going step step step
0: step. It was brilliant. Well, Typical. One, um, what what I've found that is kind of interesting is, of course, you know, with the re- reduction of uh, of cars and and um, and factories and things, we're seeing this improvement in air quality. We're seeing this improvement in uh, or reduction in carbon pollution. We're seeing these birds come back or, or start to explore these places. But something that I haven't heard being talked about yet is of course, if all of these um, rangers and others are in lockdown, there's not going to be any trapping going on. So are we going to see a spike in, I know in the South Island, and this, this summer there's a, there's a spike in mice and rats that already. This There could be adverse effects to the environment as well. That That probably aren't so good from this as well yeah and this is
1: why I'm not going to go on record on your blog uh, by saying what what we're all doing here is we don't give a toss we keep on going trapping and we trap in our backyards and some people will go out into the public places and and look after those traps maybe not every two weeks maybe every three or four weeks if i already get six or seven mice here in my on my land each day then i know out there there will be at least 12 rats going for those six mice and there will be at least two or three stoats going for those rats and so you build up this whole um, mast year phenomenon if you like yes You've got to be safe. You've got to be careful. But I reckon there's a lot of people out there that are keeping going with the traps, and I think I'm not going to stop them. I think they have they have a soul. They've got a heart.
0: Yeah, and, and, and it does it kind of does pose another interesting question if we think about the innovations that we're starting to see and people doing these video calls and starting to think about other ways to communicate, or maybe they don't need to fly for a meeting as often. Um, how we can use new technologies um, remotely. And I know a lot of this is already underway with the likes of Good Nature and these other types of traps. Um, But there's still so much work to do, really, if we want to achieve that predator free goal, um, especially in terms of the genetic technologies that at the moment it still seems like we're stuck in New Zealand and a lot of people wanting to start having those conversations and start exploring not just Going out into the field and and trialing it, because I think there's a lot of risk there, but at least having the ability to do that and assess all of the the risk and the social licence, and then we can all decide what the best approach forward is. but we're kind of stuck right now because um, because of the the regulations in New Zealand around these genetic technologies. That's right.
1: Well, that's a discussion that actually is uh, is is needing to be had the genetic technology in terms of, you know, uh, how, how do we can use gene technology, for instance, in getting on top of stoats and possums and things like that. And I know there's a bit of a political backlash here, there, and everywhere, and all that, I know, but at least we have to start the conversation to talk to New Zealanders about, what do you think about this? Do you want another load of 1080 dropped on your forest or on your land? Or do you think we could have a go at some of the clever technology that is not going to jump species and that's going to do one thing only. And at the same time, you have to remember that, um, and, and that is quite a, a good thing to to uh, to keep in mind, is that if you want to have this conversation about, for instance... Uh, reducing the number of stoats, which, by the way, are very clever animals, and I love them to bits. And I used to have a pet ferret in the Netherlands, you see. The first thing we need to do is to see, can we do something with the stoats? Instead of killing them, can we trap them and send them back to the Netherlands, where they're actually not that common anymore? Can we do some deal here? And uh, Can we look at their genetic heritage and get them uh, repatriate them to where they really belong? And then we actually do two good things for the price of one, and you don't have to kill them all. Just
0: Thoughts like that. Yeah, I know that's that's an interesting one because people like Jane Goodall, um, Mm. she absolutely doesn't want to talk about predator control or or pest eradication because every animal didn't choose to be in that situation. So so she would much prefer a model like that where we could capture them and 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 perhaps send them back home. Maybe we should do that with all the possums in Australia as well.
1: Yeah, especially if you see on the websites kids hanging, holding up the, the stoats by their tail and saying, Ah, we got them, you know. It's almost the same as when the government says, We're going to fight coronavirus. <laughs> Remember? Yeah. Um, it, I I agree. There's a respect thing there. And that is the other I word, the respect thing. And we need to get it back. Um, look how this is going to play out I don't know but we really need to look at this and so for that reason I'll give you an example of what we're doing now on this blog is um, I do similar sort of things for the various websites that I work with for the various charitable trusts by giving parents and teachers who are at the moment cooped up at home with kids and parents as well what could you do in your own backyard for instance to look at predator control or to look at a bio blitz on your own quarter acre paradise to find out what sort of environmental things do you have that are special to your place, endemic to your garden or in, in you know indigenous to your garden. How do you use iNaturalist? How do you use all these apps that we have to identify all these creatures? And how do you get the kids outside to reconnect with mother nature? So, I don't sit still during these these days of, of so-called cooped up, uh, you know, COVID nineteen self isolated, what you may call it. I'll be busy producing these sort of, if you like, resources for people to use to take their kids outside and learn something new. Simple.
0: And I think I mean it's an interesting um, experiment almost right now, in, in what people are doing with teaching their 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 kids at home or giving them the opportunity to play and, and opening up the creative parts of their mind that they may not have had so much time for before, because they're restricted in their, in their school learning. And now they can kind of go and explore and be a bit more curious and start some of that discovery that perhaps they they haven't had the opportunity to do. Um, Mm. You know, I, I thought it would have been fantastic if, Every family right now got a trap, put a trap in their backyard. They can kind of see what's going on and, and learn about that. Of course, it depends on where, where they're living and, and the sorts of uh, place, place, uh, places and, and situations that they're in. But, uh, you know, these are the sorts of things that we could all be looking at doing and, and, uh, and promoting that curiosity and discovery outside in the backyard. Absolutely. And that's exactly what I'm trying to achieve
1: in this case. So you, for instance, go to one of the autumn flowering plants in gardens, for instance, or in parks and see which pollinators visit. So how do you find that out? Taking a photo, putting them on iNaturalist, identifying them, and at the same time, you can actually take a stopwatch and say, what are the landing rates here? which species lands at what time is it cloudy is it sunny is it what's the temperature the wind conditions um you know all that sort of stuff so you actually start to build a whole curriculum of numeracy of of history of uh, observation science physics chemistry whatever and suddenly you realize that you can mold it into one curriculum and then when you put that all together you suddenly realize this is what, how my grandparents and my great-great-grandparents used to live. They identified everything from their environment. They didn't have Twitbook and stuff like that and digital cameras. They did everything through observations. And this is the lovely conversation that you can have with with uh, with, uh, with the Manafenua, who've been doing that all that time. And suddenly there's this whole connection of history and nature literacy that comes back. See? This is exactly what we need to do. And that is, I suppose, how I met you in the, in the first instance with Blake and Blake and Zed, if you like. But it's also the sort of stuff that we both had in our minds for a long, long time. And this is not a place that you have to sit still and watch TV and do space stations or whatever. This is the time when you really have to go outside and do it. It's good weather. Why not?
0: Your your eye uh, is tuned differently to most people's and so you have this amazing gift of going into a, a, a garden and finding a log or looking at a tree and being able to find you know the nest of of, a, of yeah, some yeah. some larval stage or some kind of moth or something. But how, how do we give people an understanding of you know how a Purdidae moth lives in a in a Puriri tree or or where the wetters are living, or how do we kind of open or get people to experience that for the first time? Yeah, before the dark days of being locked
1: up, this is exactly what I did with teachers. I would take groups of teachers of 25 or 30 into a forest and do exactly that. And, and the cool thing is, Jacob, what you do is, you I'm not saying you treat them like kids, but it is like that. It's the same with kids. You just go for a walk with everybody and you say nothing until the first question which is usually, what's that? And that is a teachable moment. (laughs) You know (laughs) what I mean? It's examples there. And then you say so. And my answer is usually for, I have no idea what it is, but we're going to find out. How do you do that? Is it because you got a camera here with eye You take the photo, and and uh, artificial intelligence tells me that this is the tunnel of a buriri moth. Now, how does that work? and out come the stories. And when you do it that way, so you have a partially uh, uh, self-recognition of of, this is how I discovered new things and these people keep it right in their brain, the whole story becomes alive and the whole um, life cycle becomes alive and basically becomes part of something that they can tell to their kids. So when you train teachers, you start off with that. You start off with that nature literacy of observing, finding out how it works, how it fits into the system. And basically, you're creating the whole curriculum out of it. And then you can start working with with language at the same time. And I think that is just wonderful. That's how I do it. So it's not just me. I think there are lots of good teachers that can do this. And virus schools are a good source of teachers like that. I've got some brilliant teachers in Hawkes Bay that I work with at Cape to City and the Eastern Institute of Technology, where we're actually training teachers that are training to become teachers. So we're going into these or you them, teacher training colleges now and take it right from there. And you know what? They love it. They love it because they think they're not learning anything they 're not in class it 's a
0: field trip well that 's the best kind of learning right the experiential learning and I found that too, as well as yeah. with all of the programs that we do at blake it's a, it's the same thing and uh, yeah, when people are out there learning like that that they you know it doesn 't even feel like learning it comes on so much easier um, yeah. speaking of discovery, I wanted to talk to you about this. This uh, moth uh, that I found only found out about last week. The con, what's it called, convolvulus, or the unicorn hawk moth? Hawk moth. So mm-hmm. I'd never heard of this thing before, and I saw this picture of it last week. And it's this little caterpillar with this horn <laughs> sticking out the top of its head, and then the moth no, neck, no, 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 sticking out of the top of its bum. Oh, it's, oh sorry. So i was looking at the whole thing backwards. <laughs> These Can you imagine walking around? Here in the sleep. Yeah.
1: Okay, well, well to, to be quite honest, it's not a little caterpillar either. It's as large as my finger. It's about 10 centimeters long. It's green stri- you, uh, or brown, transversely striped. It's a gorgeous thing. And it feeds on Convolvulaceae, which is a, a family of plants to which the Convolvulus belongs, but also Coumara. kumara is a Convolvulus. It's actually a vine that crawls over the ground. And um, And after a couple of months of eating, the caterpillar, of course, it changes its skin about eight times, nine times. It goes into a chrysalis. And here comes the cool thing. The chrysalis is part of a moth. I just happen to have this moth here with me because you said you wanted to know about it. So I'll put it in front of the camera. There it is. This thing is about oh nine, ten centimeters wingspan, right? Beautiful pink bottom there, and a bit of pink on the hind wings. And this is beautifully set. But look how gorgeously uh, streamlined that abdomen is. And the reason for that is that that moth can fly something like 60 kilometers an hour and it, it can migrate over oceans, vast oceans. It's a really good migrator. And it is a pollinator because it's got a tongue. Now you can't see that at this placement, but it's got a tongue that is about that long. So when it comes to a flower at night, like a convolvulus flower, it sticks its tongue out into the flower and sec- sucks the nectar out. And then at the same time, of course, the pollen go on the tongue and it goes to the next flower and it does a pollination job, right? OK, so far, so good. But because that tongue is so long, that creature... When it makes a chrysalis, has its own little casing outside the chrysalis, just to put its tongue in a couple of times back and forth. So all 10 centimeters of tongue fit into, let's say, a two and a half centimeter casing. It's extraordinary, it's like a handle. That chrysalis has got a handle, you can handle it just like that. This is there's so many stories about these things, it's just beautiful. And here comes the coolest thing of all. 30 years ago, I was speaking to some women at a marae about kumara. I was in Northland, and they say, How can we control the kumara hawk moth or the, 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 that particular hawk moth from stopping to defoliate our kumara? I said, Well, it's very simple. You have to go back to your elders from way, way back because they found a good answer. They said, What? I said, Yeah, you go to your tupuna and ask them, How did you work on these caterpillars? They said, So, well, how did they do it? They said, They used to train seagulls to pick up those caterpillars in the late afternoon from the kumara plant. And that's how they controlled it. And Maori lost that story. It was wonderful. There was just a stupid Dutch entomologist who came across it in some literature who actually told them. And they said, oh, thank you. That's great. But you see, what I just told you was history Growing crops, it was entomology, it was physiology and how these things work. It was about migrations and physics of flight and their torpedo-shaped body. And we talked a little bit about language. So all this, to me, smells like a curriculum.
0: Yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? And I mean, there's so many examples of of species like that uh, working with the environment in all sorts of different ways. Is Is that a native moth? Was that introduced or
1: no? Self-introduced. It flies right around the globe. It it takes. So couple it can of fly from to, here to Australia. No, it flew from Australia to here. Basically, I think yeah, it yeah. was stepping stone. Yeah, but it, This is a species that I know from the Netherlands. It's a species I know from America and South America. So it occurs on. Mo- it's it's almost been been global, if you like. So this is a creature that can migrate enormous distances and will do so. And uh, and and. You know, convolvulus is basically a genus that's all over the world, so it doesn't have any problems finding it. And and if you now want to follow on with this, for instance, with the monarch butterfly, we've got evidence that monarch butterflies, they're not native to New Zealand. Well, they are because they're self-introduced, but they could never establish here until people introduced swamp plants. Because that's the only place, or that group of plants, if you like, it's the only place where the caterpillars can, can, um, can if you like, uh, live on and complete their life cycle. But we know that they must have flown before swan plants were invented here in New Zealand, that they must have flown from America via the islands in the Pacific and Australia to New Zealand, because Maori in ancient days already had a name for that particular butterfly before James Cook arrived with some pillows stuffed with fluffy seeds off a swan plant, which then, you know, became established in New Zealand. So if you follow the language again, we think that this thing was already migrating on an annual basis to New Zealand, but left here going like, oh, bugger, no point
0: laying eggs here because there's nothing for my babies to feed on. (laughs) Oh, I think that's a fantastic story to uh, to finish the the podcast on, Ruba. Thank you so much. It's been great to to catch up and have a have a chat with you. Always good to talk to you too, Jacob. Go well and hey
1: hey, no boredom here. So much outside, inspiration everywhere. Go for it. Absolutely. Thanks, mate.